When I was growing up, I really didn't watch much professional sports. It really wasn't my thing. In fact, my wife would tell you it still isn't my thing. However, when I was about 14 years old, so in about 1984, a player came onto the scene playing for the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan. Watching the Bulls was one of the only sports I can remember watching fairly regularly as a kid. Because watching the Bulls, and especially Michael Jordan play, or MJ, was just so enjoyable. Michael Jordan was known for his incredible scoring ability, but even more so, many remember his ability to entertain in his play. Jordan is known for his leaping ability, competing in many dunk, slam dunk contests. He could glide that 15 feet from the free throw line, all while gyrating his arms and his legs with that signature tongue hanging out as he performed amazing feats of physical agility. His great athleticism earned him the title of Air Jordan, or his airness. He was amazing. In late 1984, Jordan received an endorsement contract from Nike, and the Air Jordan shoe was released. The Air Jordan shoe line is still the single most popular and profitable product line ever produced by Nike. Now, Michael Jordan went on to play for 15 seasons in the NBA and by many is still considered to be the best professional basketball player in history. But even if you do not agree with that statement, reported recently was that Mike, Michael Jordan has the highest net worth of any NBA athlete in history, with over $2.1 billion in personal assets. At its core, what has stood out for me in thinking about this story of Michael Jordan, as he has been in the news again recently, is how much our economy and our culture is impacted when we glorify somebody. Sisters and brothers in Christ, grace and peace to you this day from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. Today now is the third consecutive Sunday that our gospel reading has been taken from Jesus' words that he spoke while in the upper room with his disciples in Jerusalem on the night that he was betrayed. Only John's witness has preserved these precious words in such detail. In fact, the Gospel of John devotes half of chapter 13 and all of chapters 14 through 17, or if you look at it this way, over 20% of the entire Gospel to these words that Jesus spoke that night. Obviously, John believes these are words that are important for us to hear. For the last two Sundays, we have looked closely at what Jesus spoke to his disciples as recorded in chapter 14. Two weeks ago, Pastor Lars spoke of Jesus' words, let not your hearts be troubled. And last week, Pastor John, the words, if you love me, you will keep my commands. It has been good to hear these texts in small bites so that we can savor them. So today we jump to chapter 17 and our attention is directed in the first 11 verses and there's a slight change in the meaning behind what Jesus is speaking here. The whole of chapter 17 is a prayer. It's a prayer that Jesus prays as a part of what is known as his farewell discourse. This text is the traditional text used for the seventh Sunday in the season of Easter. And while these words came from that night before Jesus' trial and his crucifixion, they are used late in the season of Easter in conjunction with the text from Acts that tells of Jesus' ascension, his being taken to the Father. 
and to permanently establish his kingdom over all things. The disciples are listening to Jesus speak, but now his words are not directed at them. We hear that Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and he speaks to his heavenly Father. So these words that Jesus speaks, these are not a lesson or a sermon. This was no time for the disciples to be interrupting with their questions as they had done over and over. Jesus prays for what is about to happen, the most important event in human history, both on earth and in heaven. In the 5th century AD, the Bishop of Alexandria, whose name was Clement, said that with this prayer, Jesus was acting like the high priest for his people. And ever since then, this text has also been known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Now this, I think, is a good way for us to begin to think about how we should hear this prayer of God the Son praying to God the Father. Jesus is the great high priest. Now in the Old Testament, there were three holy offices that had been instituted. The prophets, the priests, and the kings. No one assumed these offices by their own merit. Only those called by God through the prophets and properly appointed entered into these offices. Now although Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all three of these, it's the office of priest that most grabs our attention here. The work of the priest was to mediate for humankind to God. Priests carried out their work in the temple where they would take the sacrifices of people that would bring them and present them to God on behalf of the people. There were thank offerings that were burned, there were memorial offerings that were waived, but most importantly, there were sin offerings that were sacrificed. The priest was the chosen servant of God who would take the sacrifice from the sinner, present it to God, sacrifice it, throw some of the blood of the animal onto the curtain in front of the Holy of Holies in the temple, and then throw some of the blood onto the sinner, signifying that the sinner's sacrifice had been received. This was the work of the priest. But there were many priests, but only one high priest. The high priest didn't mediate for a man or a woman. The high priest mediated for the whole nation of God's people, collectively. And the high priest would carry out one very special offering to the Lord every year on the Day of Atonement. No one else entered into the temple except the high priest. He alone would take one animal, a lamb, into the temple and he would sacrifice it at the altar. And then the high priest would take the blood of that lamb behind the curtain into the space known as the Holy of Holies and pour it over the Ark of the Covenant, which was the very specific place believed to be where God himself was found. It was in this way that the high priest would atone for the sins of the whole nation by one sacrifice once for all. But actually, it shouldn't be too hard for us to understand why Jesus is our great high priest. He is the great mediator between humankind and God. But he offers one sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, a sacrifice far more significant than any sacrifice that any high priest had ever given. Jesus is not only the high priest, but he himself is the sacrifice. He offers himself 
For he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now in the upper room, just before Jesus gives himself over to be tried, beaten, and crucified, Jesus prays. Here we see our great high priest, and even more so our Redeemer, interceding for his disciples and for all who will believe in him through their preaching. First, Jesus prays for himself, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus begins by qualifying why he has come into the world. He declares that his time has come and that time is for God to glorify the Son. Now the statement is in contrast to previous occasions when Jesus told his disciples repeatedly that his, his hour had not yet come as they had followed him in his ministry. Now Jesus says the hour has come. The great hour to which the divine clock has been set when the Son of God would be crucified. To glorify someone means to give honor, dignity, respect, that can be seen by others. It is about being lifted up and recognized. It is a public thing. It's not a private thing. Jesus is asking to be glorified so that his glory may be seen by others and in seeing his glory that they would worship him. And in worshiping him, they will worship the one who sent him. So as the disciples listen to Jesus and they hear him pray, Father, the hour has come Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. What do you think they were thinking? Were they thinking that the time had finally arrived for Jesus to do what they had hoped he would do all along? We hear this in our Acts text for today. Had the hour actually come for him to lead the Jewish people to reestablish the throne of David and take his rightful place as king? Had the hour come for Jesus to organize the revolution to overthrow the Roman government and clean up the corruption that had been going on in the temple? Well, this is often the way that we think of glory and being glorified, isn't it? Power, success, prosperity. Glorify me, God, with a pretty face, a successful career, plentiful possessions, a fat wallet or 401k so that others will show me the honor, dignity, and respect that I deserve. And by the way, God, look at all of the good that I have done in the world and accomplished in the world. And God, I will glorify you by being humble. I will give you the credit for all of it. This is the way that we think that God would glorify us. In 1518, Martin Luther wrote his Heidelberg Disputation where he teaches on the distinction between a theologian of glory and a theologian of the cross. The theologian of glory seeks to show himself as having earned God's favor, thereby being glorified to receive God's grace, while a theologian of the cross sees themselves a sinner not able to do anything in matters of salvation except to confess Christ crucified and risen. But Jesus is about to be arrested, bound, accused, and in this God 
will glorify him. Jesus will be despised and rejected, crucified, died and buried, and in this God the Father will glorify the Son. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and God's will is surely not our will. We pray that God would profit a person so that they would gain the whole world, but God says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his life? Ah, but if that same man were to lose everything, goods, fame, honor, spouse, and home, and end up homeless, but through this he comes to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and dies and goes to heaven, then he is glorified and God is glorified and all of heaven rejoices. But who actually prays for this? God's ways are not our ways. Jesus is glorified in terrible suffering and in death. This is what the Father sent the Son to do in the world. And in his perfect and willing obedience to the Father's will, the Father is glorified. Jesus said, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This is why Jesus can speak of his being lifted up on the cross of all places as the beacon of salvation which draws people to himself. He does not shy away from death because that is the very purpose for which the Father has sent him. And God raises Jesus from the dead and in this the Son, Jesus Christ, is glorified. We hear that he ascends to the Father. He is seated at the right hand of God and he is given the name that is above all names. And that name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is the glory of God the Father. Now as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but notice, however, that in all of this, Jesus is no further ahead than he has always been. This is not a glory that is bestowed to the Son that he didn't already previously have. This is the glory that he had with God the Father before the world existed. And Jesus set aside that glory, that position that was rightfully his for a time, and he tells us that the hour has now come for this glory to be restored. So clearly there is a bigger purpose in all of this. Clearly the Father sent the Son into the world to suffer and die, and the Son came into the world and accomplished the Father's will, not for the sake of his own glory or for the Father's glory. He did this for your sake, so that you may see his works, his glory, and you would worship him alone. Glory is all over the place in this prayer. And we would do well to pay attention to it. The Father glorifies the Son and gives us to him. That is Jesus carrying with him all who belong to the Father as he makes his way to the cross to die. The Son glorifies the Father by doing what the Father sent him to do. This includes giving us his Father's words and ultimately giving you eternal life. Eternal life, here and now, 
Not in some far off time and place. Not after you have taken your last breath in this life. Eternal life is for you now in my declaring it by Christ's authority. And Jesus prays for you that you would know this. That you would know the one true God. He prays, I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. The Father and the Son are in such a perfect unity that the Father gives his word to the Son so that the Son may speak this word into your ear today. And by his word, claim you as his own. And the Son speaks his Father's word to all the Father has given him. And the Son gives those who were at once estranged from God and dead in sin. He brings you back to the Father alive as a child of God. So what is this that Jesus prays for his disciples, for you and for me, for all who would come to believe and trust in his word? This is nothing less than eternal life. That you would know God, the true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. This is Jesus' prayer. And these are holy words being spoken to us before Pentecost. Having heard this prayer, we can now anticipate with joy the coming of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who makes the gospel of Jesus Christ known, who gives us the knowledge of the one true God. And that, my friends, is the good news. So what shall we say to this? A good Lutheran question. What else can we say but to confess soli Deo Gloria, to God alone the glory. Thanks be to God. Amen.